Let's finish speaking about the rich man, Lazarus, and putting his finger on the true valuable things. And it's easy to get uh, distracted even as Christians. Um, I remember when we were first born again um, in the early 70s. Um, we came right out of the world, and we, were, we weren't, uh, I mean, I was raised a Catholic and that, but I was religious in terms of I'd go to church once, twice a year, whatever, and that was it. Um, I wasn't uh, living for God or anything else. But as the Lord saved us, we were convinced of one thing, that the Lord was coming back very, very soon. Now, it's been 41 years. I'm not disappointed. I believe that he's coming back very, very soon. But the fact is that as we look to the world and we see how fast things have happened, especially in the last seven, eight years, how fast the world markets, the world um, mindset of oneness, of ecumenicalism, of one world currency, of one world government, of, of um, all this philosophy that we used to speak about, we used to teach about, and we would give different things that were in the scientific community and in the political agendas and all of this, and now they're here. Uh, and certainly the nation of Israel is in the land once again, and, and that's a very key thing, um, because um, without Israel being in the land, then Ezekiel 36-37 um, weren't fulfilled, but they have been fulfilled. That means 38 and 39 when Russia attacks is really what's next. And so we don't see anything in Scripture that would hinder Jesus from coming any time. And as you know, the prophecy of the Old Testament is in Zechariah that in the um, last days, God will make Jerusalem a troublesome stone, a burdensome uh, element to the world. And everybody will turn her back on her. Well, if you look at the world and you look at the news, you see very clearly that even we, the United States, have turned our back on Israel in many different ways. And so, um, again, God only knows the time. We're going to be looking at some of the material here in chapter 17. But... Here, the, the Pharisees were constantly opposing Jesus. But remember, they had a mentality that the Messiah was going to set up the kingdom, much like the uh, disciples, because they have the Jewish mindset. They saw the present age where Israel was under bondage to Rome and oppression and the age to come, the golden age, when God will set up the kingdom and all the promises that were given to Israel would be given to them according to the promise of Abraham. But God had a different agenda. God had the age of grace that they never saw. And as we've mentioned often, and we'll point it out again tonight, the disciples um, uh, still didn't understand that. And so, Jesus now turns to his disciples and speaks to them regarding offenses, forgiveness, faith, and service. And we touched that in depth this morning. But here in chapter 17, verse 1, he says, then he um, said to the disciples, It is important that um, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. Now, these offenses that are talking about is, is, is uh, those who are offending and trapping, and the word offense there is scandal on. It's a, uh, a trip uh, wire or a trip branch, you know, where you would make a trap for a bird and and you trap it, you, you cage it, so you can kill it. And this is those who, who would um, hinder those who have come to the Lord. You may be young believers, or even other than young believers. In uh, the world of, uh, of uh, unbelief, and Gnosticism, and, and humanism, and whatever else would follow. That they would try to corrupt the believer to go away from Christ. Jesus spoke about the woes to the Pharisees, the scribes in Matthew 23, that they um, didn't enter in themselves, and yet they hindered others who were entering in, that they went uh, across land and sea to make a proselyte, and by the time they got done, that proselyte became twice as corrupt as they. 
And so the, the, uh, the judgment here is to those who would oppose the gospel and the kingdom and would hinder people and corrupt people who have come to Christ to take them away and to have them go back in the world and that. And that's a heavy judgment that he gives them to hear. So here he says it's impossible the office should come, but woe to the person by whom they come through. So in other words, we live in a fallen world. Man is sinful. Um, if you look to the world, the history of the world, take any period of history and you look and see where the goodness of man is. Now, we're not denying that man has a potential for good. Man does have a potential for good. He's creating the image and likeness of God, but his bent is towards evil. There's great discoveries, scientific discoveries, technological discoveries that can do such great good for man. You know, food, technology, you know, everything. But on the flip side of that, that same technology we use to destroy and to corrupt because man is fallen. And so there's always the aspect of love for self and conquest and power and corruption. You, you can't get away from it. The only escape that we have of that is to come to Jesus Christ and repent that he can change our hearts and that we can study the word of God and have him direct and guide us from day to day. So this verdict really is against those who oppose the gospel and the kingdom of God directly to corrupt those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 2, he says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. So, verse 2 is not saying that this should be done to him. Often you hear people teach that. It's saying that it would be better if this guy who is offending one of these little ones, believers who have come to Christ and maybe they're young and not really grounded and they corrupt them to get involved in sin again or to walk away from the gospel in Christ. It would be better to experience a gruesome death as this before they commit such a crime. Because to commit such a crime as to taking somebody away from Christ brings severe judgment by God. That's what he's talking about. And so he's talking about the severity of the judgment for that person that comes there. It would be better, more advantageous, more profitable for you to die this type of death before you even take this step to draw anybody away from Christ. That's what he's talking about. And so it's a very, very severe warning. Um, it's, it's an ensnarement, a stumbling. Um, and... All of us have been in the world long enough. I, mean, I don't know, maybe some of you are young, you've never been in the world. But um, uh, when you're in the world, you, 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 you start developing your life of sin and you thrive on sin, you enjoy sin, and, and you even enjoy corrupting others who haven't gone that way before. It's a big joke. And you see the destruction once you come to Christ and you think about some of those things and you ask God forgiveness. And whenever I've ever run across people that I... Um, was in the world with when I've had an opportunity I've asked them to forgive me because in the world you do so many dumb things and you think it's just so hilarious but it, it really isn't it's always at the cost of somebody else's purity their health their financial uh, ruin or something it's always um, um, there's always a great great cost and so here again the um, the warning on, on um, offenses, offenses that would take people away from Christ. Very, very, very severe. Matthew 18, 6 and 7 gives the same thing, but in a different context. In verse 3 and 4, you have the uh, command of forgiveness. And this is, again, remember these guys, God, Jesus is preparing them to carry on the ministry as he's going to go to Jerusalem, die, be risen, stick around for about 40 days and leave. And 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit is sent. And the disciples here, which are apostles now, they're going to have to carry on the ministry. These are crucial lessons. These are things that are going to make them um, credible and have valid credentials to an extent to demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God inside in the midst of them to be able to do these things that are not human. They're supernatural by the work of the Holy Spirit. And here, forgiveness is definitely one of those things. Sometimes people say, well, it's not that hard. Well, you, you just have somebody do something that's really treacherous and something that's really 
hurtful or destructive. And you'll find out how hard it is to forgive on your own. You can't do it. It's only by the grace of God. And so the warning always is to not trust ourselves, To not believe that if we dig deep enough that we can find the goodness. Now, the deeper you dig, the uglier it gets. <laughs> the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79 says. And so we don't trust our heart. We're to guard our heart. For out of it comes forth the issues of life, the proverb says. Jesus says, from the heart proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, adultery. The heart of man is despicable, evil. Again, we have the potential for good, but our bend is towards evil. Only as we come to Christ can we uh, live to the glory of God. And even there we fail. You have to purposely strive to walk in the Spirit. You have to die to self. You have to call upon the Lord. You have to get in the Word of God. You have to pray. You have to fellowship. You have to... Be diligent to love the Lord above everything else. Because there are so many things to pull your attention and your devotion and your loyalty as you walk through this world. It begins the minute you get up in the morning and you start getting up and you start showering. Your thoughts start going. You've got to bring them with captivity. You get in the car. You start down the street. And here you go down the street. And here's this thing you're looking at. And you go, oh, my Lord. And over here, there's that. You know, there's, it's all around you. And so... If we don't put on the mind of Christ, then we're going to deal with the mind of the flesh. And so we need to deny the old sin nature and to walk in the Spirit, to put on the mind of Christ, and to do good warfare, even as Ephesians chapter 6, 10 down, down to 18 tells us. And so here again, the aspect of, of forgiveness is, is not a suggestion, but a command, as we said this morning. Take heed to yourselves. The first part of three could be looking back to take heed to that you don't stumble anybody and you fall under that judgment. But also looks forward to what he's going to say to look out for each other when it comes to forgiveness and everything else. He says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So... This is for everybody. This is not just for pastors. This is not just for elders. This is for every believer. Uh, there will be people that will fail you and fail me. They will sin against you. Sin is missing the mark. Sometimes it's not deliberate. Sometimes it is just a trespass. But either way, the responsibility falls on the innocent party. So if someone sins against you, you are to go to them and let them know what they've done. Now, Galatians 6, 1 says you're to go in the spirit of meekness, gentleness. Lest you one day find yourself in that position and you'll understand how you want to be confronted. So we have to be careful that we don't go in an arrogant manner or we go in wrath. But Lord, just fill me with your grace and to confront an individual. We're looking for restoration, not mere castigation. So we want to reveal to that individual what has been committed against us in hopes that they would acknowledge that and say, you know, I'm terribly sorry, please forgive me. And as they ask forgiveness, forgive me for lying about you or slandering you, that I would say, you know what, I forgive you and it's done. So the two people have dealt with it, it's forgiven, it's buried, and no one has to know anything about it. Matthew 18 is the same thing. You go by one and you confront the individual. Again, the burden's on the innocent party. If he, if he repents and acknowledges it, it's done. Nobody knows about it except two people. Then three, then four, and the last, the church. So there's always a circle because a little larger, but it's always to the minimal so that things don't get spread. Sin is not to be put up on the uh, internet, okay, or billboards. Those who love people, Peter says, and James says, you cover a multitude of sins. You say, you know what? I agree with you. I forgive you. It's done like it's never existed. That's full reconciliation. Now, sometimes you go to somebody, they don't agree that you're right. And you know that they've wronged you. Well, all you can do is your best, and what you do is you release them from that, lest you become bitter. And you keep praying and hope that you might be able to reconcile as they acknowledge their error and then there can be full forgiveness and reconciliation. But not for a second do I believe that I'm reconciled to you if you don't acknowledge it and you don't ask me forgiveness. I'll release you for my sake. So I'm not wrong with God. And I've done what I'm supposed to. 
but I don't deceive myself thinking that we're reconciled, we're buddies. We're not. Can two walk together except they agreed? Amos 3.3? No. The reason you and I can walk with God is because we agree with Him. We confess our sins and He says, I agree with you that you've confessed it and let me put it away. We're done. So when we confess, we acknowledge, we repent, and we abandon it, then we have fellowship with God, right? And the same thing with each other. If those things aren't happening on the horizontal level, then we're not going to be right in the vertical level with God. And so it's very, very important. Now in verse 4 he says, And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, uh, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Both of these are commands, by the way. Now as we said this morning, the seven times doesn't mean the same sin. And it's a real situation here. Because we are fallen individuals, though we don't practice and live in sin any longer, we still fail. And sometimes we, we may think we haven't failed all day, but if we had somebody running around writing the things that we do and that, we would find out how much we blow it, right? And so it's always to be in right relationship with the Lord. As you're going along the day, when things happen, Lord, forgive me. Lord, this and that. And you keep right. You stay right with the Lord. You know, it's like your cell phone. You know what I mean? You've got to make sure that you've got enough minutes and you've got to make sure you're not in a hole, right? I mean, I don't care how good your cell phone is. You go through a hole, they're going to drop you like a bad habit. Simple. And if you've got sin in your life, you're in a spiritual hole. God doesn't hear you. Not until you get right. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God, God doesn't hear me. And so I need to be right with God and right with man. And the whole basis is forgiveness. And so here again, we see that it brings us to the end of ourselves, that there's no way you and I can do this. Not once, not seven. And in Matthew 18, he says seven times, uh, 70, 490 times. <laughs> again, every one of these times, it's genuine, it's, it's genuine repentance and genuine uh, asking of forgiveness. So then I must impart that forgiveness. So once again, I look to Jesus and not myself because I can't do this. And I've got to put that away under the blood and when it comes back to me, I've got to keep forgiving and put it away and remind myself that it's, not, it's done. It doesn't exist anymore. There's been an asking of forgiveness. There's been an imparting of forgiveness. There's been full reconciliation, and it's done. But your flesh, the world, and Satan will always be there to bring it up. So, once again, we have to put on the mind of Christ. We have to walk in the Spirit. We have to ask Him to fill us with His love. We have to remember that no one will sin against us as much as we sin against others. And against God. Certainly against God. And yet God forgives us every time. And so uh, all of us are debtors uh, to an extent uh, regarding forgiveness. And so this would be important for them as they're doing ministry. Because when you are doing ministry and you're preaching the gospel as a Christian, a minister, whatever it is, there are people not going to like you. There are people that are going to go out of their way to try and make life rough for you. <laughs> there are going to be people that try to provoke you. <laughs> and you've got to release them even if they didn't ask you forgiveness. And when they do come and ask you forgiveness, because you have been forgiven, you don't have a choice, nor I. We have to forgive them, God says. It's a command. So once again, as a disciple, you, you have to depend on the Lord. There's nothing we can do in ourselves. In verse 5 and 6, hearing this, the, the, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> well, you can imagine it brought them to the end of Then This is good. God will call you and direct you and myself to things in life that will bring me to the end of myself. But God never asks me to do something but what He first enables me to be able to do it. Often we find in the Scripture when Jesus tells a person, go wash in the pool of Siloam that you may receive your sight. 
to the man with the withered hand. He says, stretch out your hand. To the leper says, your faith has made you whole. Be cleansed. Now, any one of those could have said, well, don't you understand? I got leprosy. How can I stretch out my hand? It's, it's withered. But if Jesus gives the command, then he gives the enablement to do it. And that's what faith is about, when God speaks to you. And God directs you in something that's going on in your life, with your wife, with your husband, with other people, with your children, whatever it is, at the job. But you would trust Him for the things He directs you, so that when you share Christ, you share the gospel, you're sharing life with Christ. Not just nifty little sermon notes that you get, and things that you can just kind of flip off and quote verses and all that. No, no, no. But life in itself, that you walk with the Lord. You die to self. You see God work through you. You see the supernatural, the most natural things. That's what Christianity is about. That's what we the church are about. Not just going to church. Not just being in a building. Not just having concerts. Not just all this stuff. No. It's about becoming more like Jesus and less like us. Every day, from glory to glory, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, as Paul says. And so here they cry out, for, Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord says, he corrects them. Wrong request. And by the way, it's a command. That's the contradiction. You don't command Jesus. <laughs> and so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by this roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What Jesus is saying is, you don't need any more faith. What you need to do is use the faith that you have. He brings them to the smallest of seed, the mustard seed. It's a bush. Sometimes it grows abnormally large to 10, 12 feet. And what he's saying here, just whatever God asks you to do, he enables you. It's not the quantity of faith, but the quality of faith. Even the size of a mustard seed, whatever God, whatever the Lord would ask them or tell them to do, if they believed and depended on Him, He would do it through them. Because it is He who's working in and through His people. The test is, when all this happens, is whether I take the glory, whether I take the credit. This is the problem with ministers. When God begins to use them and God begins to do a great work. They're so humble when they first begin. They have three, four, five people, 40 people, and they just all humble. And then God does a great work, and then they're walking and rocking like hot shots. And everybody's praising them, and of course, oh, no, no, it's not me. But, you know, but you, you, I, I've seen men. They have changed completely. They're so proudful as you see them walk, as you see them do ministry. And they forget and we're going to end with the parable there of the unprofitable servant. That it's God who does it. We have nothing to boast about. Whatever God does, He does by His grace and His mercy and His love for His people. And um, we're not to touch His glory. Wrap your arms around His holiness and get completely away from His glory. Two opposite things all the time. God has put this treasure in this earth and vessel that the power and glory may be of God and not of ourselves, Paul tells the Corinthians. He gets the glory. And so here he corrects them. Now in verse 7 on down to 10, he gives the parable of the unprofitable servant to demonstrate these three teachings. He illustrates them. And which of you, having a servant plowing and tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Well, nobody would. The servant serves the master. It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink? Yes. That's the proper order. Now sometimes people get upset when they read the Bible, especially today a lot of the uh, 
politically correct people and social justice, uh, liberation theology, and they say, well, you know, Jesus is not really right here going along with slaves and slavery. I, I, we just don't agree. He's using the culture of the day, millions of slaves in the Roman Empire, and he's using this to instruct his apostles that he's the master and they are the servants. The word for servant is a bond servant, one who is a, a servant for life by choice. The Old Testament, he would serve for six years. He would re be released on the seventh year, having paid his debt. But if he didn't want to be released, he would tell his master he wanted to serve him for life. And again, he would take him to the door of his house and put his ear by the doorpost and with an awl and a hammer, make a hole in his, finger, in his ear and put an earring in it. And when you saw a man with an earring, he was a bond servant of his master. He loved his master. He thought he couldn't do better for himself, so he would serve him for life by choice. That's the word here. This is what the disciples are. But if God starts using you, and you forgive, and you are used to do miracles and to accomplish things, pretty soon you start thinking that you're not that bad. God sure is lucky to have you. And all of a sudden you start feeling and thinking that you are really God owes you something and that you start taking the glory. There's the danger, the pride. And you forget who the master is and who the slave is and that's what he's telling them here. Remember, parables compare or contrast. That's all they do. They have one central message. And they have a punchline. We're going to see it again here. This is a comparison. Does he thank his servant because he did the things which were commanded him? A rhetorical question with an obvious answer. He gives it. I think not. Of course not. Here's the punchline. It's a comparison. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. What a simple lesson. But it's so easily lost in the hustle and bustle of glitter and success and all kinds of activity. And we forget. Unprofitable. One who renders no service. One who is good for nothing to an extent. And yet as we yield to God, we become good for something, for the kingdom of God. But in ourselves, we're bad news. We're selfish. We're self-centered. Rather than wanting to forgive, I want my pound of meat. <laughs> I want vengeance. Rather than um, going with the program of God, believing that we need to repent, I say, well, you know, we're all kind of good. We, there's no such thing as sin. We just kind of miss, you know, make mistakes. Like today, our political arena, nobody lies. They just misspeak, Really. The vocabulary changes. There's no right or wrong. Everything is neutral. Everything is gray. And that can happen within the church too. In fact, that's what's happening in a lot of the emerging church. That you cannot learn any objective truth from the Bible. So rather than teaching the Bible, expounding the chapters and the verses, just sit around and dialogue and discuss. What do you think about this verse? What do you think about the verse? Everybody about an hour is telling about this verse. Okay, let's go get a beer. Really? Well, what's the difference between you and a non-believer then? You walk away without any truth. There's no truth in the Bible you can learn from. It's just opinions. Horrible. And so, God using people can puff them up. They think more highly of themselves. It doesn't take that long to see, really realize who you really are. You live with you. <laughs> you know who you are. 
but it's the applause and the compliments and all the things that are around you that if God uses it, you have to be careful about. As you always have to look at Jesus. You have to look at the Word of God so that you can see exactly who you are. That's why you pray. That's why you study. That's why you read the Word. That's why you stay in service in the church and you serve so that you live in the real world. This word unprofitable appears only one other time in Matthew 25, 30 for that unprofitable servant who buried his talent rather than putting it in the bank for interest for his master when he returned. Now, the Sabbath day that began in chapter 14, verse 1, has just finished at verse 10. So from 14, 1 to 17, 10, all of those things happen in one day. What a busy day for Jesus. <laughs> All in one day. Now, verse 11 down to 19, we have the cleansing of the ten lepers. It says, Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Once again, we are told here that um, Jesus is on his way down to Jerusalem. Um, the location and situation facing Jesus is very clear here. This is the third time that it's mentioned that Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. Uh, Luke 9.51, 13.22, this is the third. By the time he began from Caesarea Philippi, it was six months under the cross, the shadow of the cross, before he's crucified. He's almost there. Jesus was passing through the midst of notice Samaria and Galilee, indicating between the borders. You have Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Those of you who went to Israel with us this, this year, you remember. And so he's coming down. He's come to the border of Samaria, coming to the end of Galilee. And he's there in the villages we're going to see. It's not mentioned by name because the village is not important. What is important is what it tells us here in verse 11. Um, that as he went through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, then as he entered, verse 12, a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. Here you have ten individuals who are considered dead. You remember back when Miriam rebelled against Moses as well as Aaron because he had married the Ethiopian woman and God struck Miriam with leprosy? And Moses says, Lord, she is as a dead person. And God cleansed her. Leprosy is an awesome, awful disease. And it just, it, it, it eats all the nerve senses to be able to feel. So that's why lepers often have to wear cushioned shoes and, and be careful because they don't feel. So when they go across sharp edges, they don't feel that they're cut or anything else. Or if they're sleeping, their hand is down, a rat nibbling on their finger, they're not going to wake up. You lose the sense of the, from the extremities inward. Um, it's called Henson's disease, and it still is not curable, but it, it, they do arrest it to an extent. But leprosy is a type of sin to the scriptures. Uh, sin kills. The wages of sin is death, Paul says to the Romans, uh, 3.23. And, um, and sin it destroys our ability to sense conviction. It, 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 it damages our ability to fellowship with people, to fellowship with God. It destroys our own character. It brings destruction to people mentally, physically. If you hang in the world long enough, You see the basket cases that are out there. I see some of my friends who, um, when I came to the Lord in 73, and they heard the gospel long when I heard it. And they haven't repented. I see their lives now. Many of them are dead because of all the drinking and all the drugs. What a difference it's made. I'd be there too. So, who you live for 
makes a big difference how you live. How it affects your life, mentally, physically, spiritually. How you conduct your family. How you raise your children. What you do, where you go, how you speak. Always recognizing that it's the miracle of God and not because you're so good. Because you can be completely a moral person, a completely ethical person, a good citizen, but you're still lost and a sinner. And if you die without Jesus Christ, you will perish. None of us are good enough to enter heaven alone. We are good for nothing. We're good for sinning. It's been 41 years since I've been born again, but if you want to go sin, I'm ready to go. I'm a good sinner. I haven't forgotten. And so I must walk in the Spirit. I must make daily choices. I have to stay in the Word. I have to study. I have to pray. I have to call on the Lord. I have to make the right choices. Looking to Him. These lepers were ostracized. They had to live outside the community. They were cut off from family, from friends, because they would contaminate people. Leprosy in the Scriptures, as I said, is a type of sin. And... Um, in the law, they were to cover their lip and to yell, cry out aloud, unclean, unclean, in Leviticus 13.45. Here they are far off, according to the laws. Some of the oral laws said 150 feet. If it's downwind, it depends if it's a little shorter. But here again, they're crying out for mercy. Without doubt, they must have heard of Jesus healing other lepers. We have already seen in chapter 7, 22, that Jesus sent back the message to John the Baptist's cousin when he was in jail. How the blind had received their sight, lepers were cleansed. And then he finishes with the key and the gospel, the kingdom is preached. That was the most important thing. But notice also another aspect about leprosy. It always says it's been cleansed. They're, they've been cleansed from their leprosy. Just like you and I are not cured from sin, we're cleansed from our sin. We're made whiter than snow. The blood of Jesus Christ does this. Though you may remember, though people may throw it in your face, when you repented, God forgave you for every one of your sins and made you whiter than snow. Cast them as far as east as the west, burying them in the deepest ocean. Now I need to remember that. So when the accuser of the brethren, Satan, comes or other people come, I say, Lord, I thank you that you forgave me. I don't look back, I look forward. One thing I do, Paul says, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward the things that are ahead in Philippians chapter 3. Very, very important. There's no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. They call him Master. So the provision for the cleansing in Leviticus 14 for the, uh, um, for the leper. And here, they lifted up their voice in verse 13, they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourself to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. So now he tells them in verse 14 to go according to the provisions of Leviticus 13 and 14. But yet they're looking at themselves. They, they're still lepers. How can I go to the priest? They'll, they'll stone me. I, I, I'm full of leprosy. And there's the, Step of faith of believing what God told them. Go show yourself to the priest. So they all start taking off. And as they're going, they're cleansed. You ever notice that Jesus never healed or cleansed lepers? 
the same way all the time. Sometimes he touched them. This time he says, go show yourself to the priest. People are always looking for patterns. You see there's a lot of healing ministries, so-called. <laughs> and, and, and they always have a pattern. Benny Hinn and others. Jesus never healed twice the same way. Sometimes it was instant. Sometimes it was progressive. Remember the man with the, with the eyes of blindness and he put a little mud in the eyes. What do you see? He said, oh, I see men like trees. He said, oh, come here. Do you think Jesus made a mistake? Talk on it. I missed it. Now, come here. Let me do it again. No. He did it differently. Now, if you want to look at the method, what, how did he do that? Did he, he, he said he picked up dirt and put it in his eyes. Now, did, did, he, did he take the dirt, spit in the dirt, and then put it in his eyes? Or did he get the dirt, spit in his eyes, and then put the dirt in? Because if you want a pattern, you've got to find out how, right? And people are always trying to find some pattern. And so you have a lot of emotional theology that goes around the church, trying to make things happen. And you've got a lot of charlatans that just lie. And they merchandise the people of God. Listen, if God's going to heal you, He will heal you. You ask the Lord. We gather together the first midweek of the month. We cancel the study and we worship the Lord. We have communion. And then we just pray as a body. And then if there's needs, we pray for people. We anoint them and lay hands and... We let God be God. We give God an opportunity to move in the midst of us. But we don't believe that these hands have any magical power or that, you know, you know, revival Thursday nights only. Really? So God only heals on Thursday nights, huh? I mean, it's ridiculous. And yet here Jesus again, just sovereign, he just does it. And so they're move they're going towards him, they see it, that they're cleansed. And in verse 15, one of them. When he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell on his face at his feet, the feet of Jesus, giving him thanks. And he said, and, or, and he was a Samaritan. This is no coincidence. Where are they at? It's coming down from Galilee, right? From Caesarea Philippi down. It's come to the borders of Galilee and Samaria. In the border town, one Samaritan. What were the other nine? Jews. Simple. Who's always rejecting Jesus? In the Gospel of Luke, the Jews. Who's the open ones? The Gentiles. Remember the Good Samaritan in Luke 10? The priest? The Levite? They just went on the other side. It was the Good Samaritan that took that man, bandaged him up and healed him and took him to the inn and paid some money. He said, listen, take care of him and if you... If you spend some more money, when I come back, I'll pay you back. The Samaritans were half-breeds. The Assyrian captivity in 722 in Kings tells us that they used to cross-populate people. So they would take their captives and let's just say that they would conquer Pasadena. They would take the people from Pasadena and move them over to Cucamonga and put them there. And take the people from Cucamonga and put them in Pasadena. And sometimes they would divide them up to isolate people from their homeland and their families and disperse them. So this way they would lose their cultural and national identity and, and be le less resistant in their captivity. It works very good. And you destroy their nationality. So the Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were half Gentile and half Jewish. Remember, Jesus went through Samaria. I must needs go through Samaria because the woman was there at the well, right? In fact, they, the, the hatred was so great that when a Jew traveled, they traveled one of two roads. Either to the um, east of the Jordan River on the other side, modern-day Jordan, and they would go up the King's Highway, or they would go along the Via Maris, along the sea. Those highways are still traveled today. They're the main roads. And once they went there, and then they crossed over, you have Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Once they crossed over Samaria, and they could go into Galilee or Judea, then they would shake all the dust out of their clothes in case they got some Samaritan dirt. It was a real hatred. Who, who came back? The Samaritan. Now the Samaritan could have said, man, doggone it, he told me to go to the priest, I better go to the priest. No, he knew who healed him. The priest hadn't healed him. 
He came back and he glorified God and he thanked Jesus. And in verse 17, Jesus, so Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Again, the Jewish individuals through the Gospel of Luke are the people who are rejecting Jesus. Even these lepers. While the Samaritans, the Gentiles, are more open to the Messiah. Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? You know, sometimes we think some people are so far away from the kingdom that they would be the last person to be saved. And then we look at a person who is real nice, real decent, and we say, now that guy, he can be, he's further from the kingdom. When people are deep into sin, they know who they are. They don't think they deserve heaven. Trust me. <laughs> but if they hear the gospel, God will be there to convict them and to minister his love to them. And God will use that opportunity if they're open to save them. And they will. Some people that are really good, they just feel that they don't need to be saved. They, what, do I, what am I going to repent from? I'm, I'm a good husband. I'm a good dad. I'm a good provider. I don't harm anybody. What do you tell a person like that? You tell him he's going to hell. Moral and ethical. Too many people are afraid to confront people like that. There's no nice way to tell people they're going to hell. They're going to hell. If you're going on the highway tonight in the freeway and you see a, a house on fire, And you see a person yelling for help, and nobody else is, is aware of that, but you are. And you get off the freeway, and you get up there to help them. Do you think that they're going to fault you for getting out of the freeway and saving them? They're going to be so grateful that you took the time to save them. And that's exactly what happens when the Spirit of God deals with the heart of individuals. Now, when you tell people they're lost, they may not like it at first, but just again, you're going by and there's a building on fire and there's a guy who doesn't know, he's not aware of it, and you're out there in the street going, hey, 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 and he's looking down, that guy's stupid looking, what's he, he looks ridiculous. But you finally get his attention, he finds out. Do you think he's going to come down and the first thing he's going to say, man, you sure look silly, what a dumb guy you are. No, he's not even going to mention that. He's going to put his arms around you and hug you and thank you for saving his life. And so we need to be in prayer and asking God for wisdom, how to share with people, when to share, when not to share, to be that light, to be sensitive, to be an example. And God will use us to reach many. Here's a Samaritan. Verse 19 says, And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So-so. Saved. The other nine were healed. Physically. This man was also cleansed from his leprosy. But he got saved. Now, my father, God healed my father of a hole in his liver as a non-believer. We prayed for him. And God healed him. He wasn't saved. And then God saved him years later. God can do whatever he wants. But if my father had not repented, I'll never see him. But thank God he repented because I'll see him in heaven. Physical healing is one thing, but that you are saved, you've got eternal life. If you get healed, you're going to die. 
But if you get saved, you're never going to die. And so the Christian looks at physical death and illness different. We have hope in Christ Jesus. If this is what life was all that we had, we, we'd be most miserable above all men. Can you imagine you just grow up and you go to school and you work hard and you're trying to just accumulate all this different stuff and then when you're ready to enjoy, you end up dying. That's it. When you're ready to just kick back and all of a sudden, you're dead. Is that what life's all about? You know, they have bumper stickers like the, the person that dies with the most toys win. How dumb is that? They bury you. They don't, you don't take nothing with you. Everything's left behind. So the perspective, the priorities are different. Now, in verse 20 to 37, we have um, the coming kingdom. Um, you also have certain verses that can be parallel in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. But they're not in the same context all the time. Okay? So you have to be careful. Um, this he's talking about the second coming here. Some people confuse and they mix the second coming with the rapture. In verse 20, when um, he was asked by the Pharisees here, 20 and 21, uh, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. So in other words, the word here observation means inspection or ocular evidence. They were looking for certain things to happen. Can you tell us what to look for so we can know when the kingdom is coming? You know how many people are always chasing the Holy Spirit all over from church to church in 10 to 10? You know, 20 years ago we had the Toronto blessing. I call it the Tonto blessing. And then you have the Pepsi-Cola down there in Florida. And, it's, and then it's Rick Warren. And then it's Mars Hill and this and that. And People are always chasing. Where's the next blessing? Where's the fountain at? It's ridiculous. Notice what he says. It doesn't come with observation. Now remember, the disciples as well as the Pharisees here, they're Jewish. They have in their mind that God is going to set up the kingdom, knock off Rome and set up the kingdom. In verse 21, he says, Nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you or in the midst of you. Different translations. In other words, he is not saying that they, the Pharisees, were in the kingdom, but because the king was present and the gospel had been preached and some had accepted the Lord, now the kingdom is in the midst of them. That word, their observation, is the medical term used for watching the symptoms of a disease. So in other words... The kingdom of God is not going to be some political agenda that's going to bring about the kingdom. Now, when the moral majority in the 80s and 90s that we were going to get Christian senators and a president and we're going to just, you know, bring in the kingdom in the United States, good luck. I, I hope that you've changed your mind now. <laughs> we're so far away from a Christian nation more than we've ever been, from our government to our education to everything else. Even within the church, there's the whole postmodern of um, the emergent church that really opposes the Word of God. And so we see that the day will be darker. It's not going to get better. And so here, you know, he says... They're not going to have to announce it. It's not going to be something's going to be secret. The kingdom has arrived. It's in the midst of us. It's among us. It's in the believer, but not in the non-believer. The kingdom of God has come, so you see like an eclipse. It comes, Jesus came, and it arrived. The kingdom is present, but yet to come in its full, full Fulfillment. It keeps coming. Jesus is coming. And then the second coming, it's an eclipse. He sets up the kingdom. So the kingdom is present right now in principle with the people of God in the church. But not everybody in the world is a Christian. But the Lord is coming to set up the kingdom. Now the church is not the kingdom. The church is part of the kingdom. The church will not bring in the kingdom. But the church will come back with Jesus to set up the kingdom. Because we're raptured and then we come back seven years later. 
So there's a big difference. Now, in 22 down to 25, the teaching of Jesus to his disciples, he turns to them and he said to them, his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. See, they're thinking we're going to set up the kingdom. What was their last conversation? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? James and John asked for the left and the right hand. And Jesus rebuked them. And the ten were mad at the, at the two because the two beat the ten to it. They all had the same desire. They wanted a ring when they got to Jerusalem. He says here, it's not going to happen right away. You will not see it. And they will say to you, look here and look there. Do not go there after them or follow them. So in other words, he's going to tell them that he's going to suffer and die first. Then there's going to be a long lapse of the church age. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. This is the second coming. Revelation 1, 7 says, Every eye will see him. He's talking about the second coming. The church is not in here. He's not talking about the rapture. We're going to see as we move down. He's talking about the second coming. Verse 24. In verse 20, they ask him about the kingdom, the millennial reign. That's what the context of this uh, part of the chapter. Verse 25, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. When he gets in chapter 19, he's going to write in. He writes in Jerusalem on the donkey as the triumphal king. And he's rejected, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. 483 years today, the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. The suffering Messiah. Verse 26, and as it was in the days of Noah. Now he gives in verse 26 to 30 the character of the days prior to the second coming. Stay on track. Be a good hound dog. Stay on the trail. It's the second coming that he's talking about. Not the rapture. As it was in the days of Noah, the character of the day, so it will be. In the days of what? The Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Life as usual. What is the focus? They did not believe judgment was coming. That's the focus. Today, life as usual. You tell people, hey, the Lord's coming. Hey, give me another brew. People don't believe judgment is coming. Oh, we've got the solution. Boy, we're gonna, you're going to have one world market, one world bank, one world number. Hey, we're going to have it all together. We're all going to be equal. Really? Okay. <laughs> Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Life as usual. Now, nothing wrong with any of these things in themselves. But it's in living for these things and not living for God and not believing there's judgment coming that makes them bad. Okay? But on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained there fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. What's the focus? Judgment. The focus is judgment. Yes, no escape. Yes, lot escape. But that's not the focus. The focus is judgment. That's the central focus. Because when Jesus comes back and we come back with him instead of the kingdom, what happens? The battle of Armageddon. What's that? Judgment. The tribulation is not in here. He's just talking about the second coming. The tribulation and great tribulation is in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Not here. Look at 30. Even so will it be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed. That's second coming. Alright? So you've got verse 24. You've got verse 30. And now 31. In that day, he who is on the housetop, And his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise the one who is in the field. 
Let them not turn back. Now, you find these words in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, but it's a different, different context. There it's talking about the first fulfillment of when Titus came in to destroy the temple and to destroy Jerusalem. So those who pay heed left the city of Pella and they survived. Long-term wise, it's going to be at the second coming. But you find that in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Here he's talking about the setting up of the kingdom. There will be no need for this, the people who, who, who are on the earth to get anything, whether it's food, whether it be material. Why? Because judgment is coming. The millennial kingdom is going to be set up. Your goods are not going to do you any good. You understand the context? So if you stay on the context, then you don't bring your own subjective interpretation. Context, context, context makes interpretation easier. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. What do we remember about her? Her heart was in the world. She really didn't believe judgment was coming. You see? She was judged. Verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now you know that during the tribulation period, there are going to be many to be saved, right? And there are even going to be some who are not going to take the mark of the beast. Those who take the mark of the beast, they're damned. There's no salvation, no second opportunity. But those who survive, miraculously, I don't see how, but they do. When Jesus returns and sets up the kingdom, they enter the kingdom. Right? Those who have the mark don't enter the kingdom, right? This is the end. This is the coming of Christ. Any attempt to save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, then you save it, right? Simple. Look at 34. I tell you, this is Jesus speaking. In that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be at the field. One will be taken, the other left. Night and day. Why? Because there's night in one side of the world and there's day on the other side of the world. Simple. It's something that happens all at one time. The second coming. Okay? It isn't a day all around the world at the same time. It's day and night. Now, if we don't stay on the spiritual trail and identify the second coming, then what people do here is the one taken is the rapture. No, 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 no. This is the second coming. You can't use this for the rapture. This is not rapture. This is second coming. You can't just stick it in there. The one taken and the one left. It can go one of two ways. If the one taken is to judgment, it's to the battle of Armageddon. And it's those who have mark, taken the mark of the beast. If it's to enter the kingdom that are taken, then those are the ones that didn't take the mark and they enter the kingdom. We just don't know which is which. But this is second coming. This has nothing to do with the rapture. Many commentators put the rapture here. It can't be. It's second coming. Matthew 25. So often people teach the five foolish virgins, right? The rapture. Really? Matthew 24, 25 are like Twinkies. They go together. Jewish territory. The church is not even in there. At the end of chapter 24, Jesus has come back. He's rewarded his servants. What's the first thing he does in chapter 25? He gathers the nations and separates from the sheep from the goat. He makes judgment how they treated the Jew during the great tribulation. So how can you put the rapture there in Matthew 24? The church is raptured before the seven years. The end of 24, Jesus is on the earth already. 25, he's making judgment over the nations. Again, context, context, context. So there's a lot of confusion in the teaching of Matthew 24, 25. The foolish virgins in the wise virgins, that's not for the rapture. That's those people who are waiting for the coming of Christ who have been faithful. That have not taken the mark. They enter the kingdom. It's simple. 
And so context will allow you to make a better decision on how to interpret it. Okay? Now, verse 37 says, And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagle will be gathered together. Some people put vulture. The word is eitos. It's eagle. If the context is the second coming, I believe it's referring to the battle of Armageddon, Revelation 19. For judgment. Simple. If I'm completely wrong, it doesn't matter. But context helps me, right? If you stay on trail, second coming, second coming, second coming, you can't put rapture. Rapture is seven years before the second coming. So that helps you understand which way it goes. And so, they're headed to Jerusalem. They think that they're ready to reign. <laughs> they're going to set up the kingdom, knock off Rome. What a surprise they have coming. Wow. Allow me to elaborate if James and John would have been given the permission to sit on the right hand and left hand by Jesus. And Jesus says, all right, I'll go along with your mommy. John, you got the right. James, you got the left side when we get to Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, they're crucifying Jesus. Here's James and John. They're being crucified next to him instead of the thieves. And from the cross, James and John say, Lord! And Jesus says, what did you have in mind? Be careful what you ask Jesus. Make sure you understand the scriptures. Not one of the twelve were servants. They wanted to be served. Do you think you're any different? Or I? When Jesus said, one of you will betray me tonight, every one of them said, is it I? Every one of the twelve knew they had the potential to betray Jesus. Ooh, be careful how highly you think of yourself. You abide in Christ. You grow. You develop. You mature. You keep your account short. And you walk humble. And God will take care of you. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. Deal with our hearts. We thank you for your word. And Lord, that we have hope in you and no one else. We thank you for everybody here. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, you would speak to their hearts. Lord, you would just uh, save them. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. Maybe you're over the internet. You can call upon Him right now and ask Him to forgive you and He will save you right now by His grace. This is a prayer of repentance. Yours, not mine. And He will take you at your word and He will save you right now. You can repeat after me if you want. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to walk into the family. There's a brother to my right or left. He would love to talk with you, give you a Bible absolutely free, share some important thing for your growth, and you'll be free to leave. But don't leave.